files were stolen and released. An attack last year on the Ukrainian metro system and airport in Odessa and the 2016 release of material from the U.S. Democratic National Committee, already attributed by U.S. authorities to Russia. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amika na Unai. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa, leading the Women's Month Conversations. Burundian Home Affairs ministers urging suspended foreign NGOs to abide by Burundian laws and prepare necessary documents in a bid to resume their activities. Among required documents includes a plan showing how they will progressively correct ethnic and gender imbalances in their respective staffs. Burundi's National Security Council announced a three-month suspension last month. Bernard Bankukira reports from Bujumbura. The government of Burundi still maintains the suspension for three months of all activities of international non-governmental organizations working in Burundi during a meeting held this Tuesday by the Burundian minister with the representatives of these NGOs, Pascal Barandagie. Burundi's Home Affairs Minister emphasized that many NGOs have not respected the law governing them. All hopes of the representatives of these organizations died down just at the beginning when he informed them that he cannot change the decision. For him, there is zero NGO in Burundi since October 1st, the date set by the National Security Council for the implementation. We're not here to change anything. The National Security Council that made this decision is an organ that is above ministries, which is headed by the heads of state. We're here to give you some clarifications related to this decision. And as you already heard, it is about suspension of all NGOs operating in Burundi for a period of three months. And this, in a bid to set order, the decision comes to help us set order. This is to mean that from October 1st, there is zero NGO in Burundi. Four documents have been required by the Home Affairs Minister for any NGO to reopen. The file contains four things, and among them, you are supposed to already have one. Only three remain. First, we hope you all have the Convention on Cooperation delivered by the Burundian Foreign Ministry. The remaining ones are a protocol whereby your organization will comply with Burundians 2018-27 National Development Plan because activities of foreign NGOs must be in harmony with the Burundian law and be part of the programs and priorities 
of the government of Burundi, a document showing your commitment to abide by Burundi's bank rules and a document showing that your NGO complies with a three-year progressive plan to correct ethnic and gender imbalances in your staff as provided by the constitution of Burundi. Last Thursday, the Burundian National Security Council decided a three-month suspension of foreign NGOs requiring them to abide by the law governing them. But the Home Affairs Minister explained that those operating the health and education sectors are not concerned in the suspension. Since January 2017, the government of Burundi put in place a law imposing a very strict control of operations of NGOs operating the country. Among key provisions of the new law includes having foreign currency accounts to be managed by Burundian Central Bank. A total of 134 non-government organizations have been listed by the Home Affairs Ministry, with 75 coming from the European Union countries, 31 from the United States of America. The neighboring Rwanda leads African countries with just two organizations. For Channel Africa, this is Bernardo Bankokira. Reporting from Bujumbura. South Africa's Finance Minister Ntlantanene has revealed to the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture that then-President Jacob Zuma fired him from his position back in 2015, shortly before the Cabinet reshuffle. Nene appeared before the Commission where he detailed the run-up to his dismissal from office. He told the Commission that Zuma fired him from his position as he refused to toe the line on projects such as the nuclear deal and the running of South African Airways. Mbali Tetani reports. Finance Minister Ntlantlanene began his testimony by telling the Commission that he was fired as Finance Minister in his first term because he refused to approve projects that would benefit the Gupta family and other associates of former President Jacob Zuma. Indeed, I do believe that I was removed from office because of my refusal to toe the line in relation to uh, certain projects. And in hindsight, and having uh, also heard uh, f- uh, from the uh, former deputy minister's uh, uh, saga, it seems that those projects may have benefited the Gupta family and other close associates of the uh, then president. I will, in, uh, uh, if allowed to, uh, describe some of these examples uh, for, of, uh, for instance, the nuclear deal and the uh, SAA strategy because these issues, like other procurement processes within government and state-owned companies, were subject of intense scrutiny uh, by the National Treasury. Nene then told the Commission of a mysterious document which surfaced at Treasury titled Project Spiderweb. Nene says the document was designed to sow seeds of suspicion as well as to undermine and destabilize Treasury. It was alleged that it will influence the appointment of key leaders in the Reserve Bank, Treasury, DTI and SOEs that fall under their ministries to manage the outcomes of these institutions, defend the position of the spiderweb through a media and attack and prosecute critics of spiderweb, Project Spiderweb through SARS and other means. Were allegations made in relation to you in Project Spiderweb? Indeed. The main allegations made in relation to me were that I'm being handled um, by Ms. Maria Ramos, whom the document code, uh, code names 
as the Queen of Leaves. Then a further detail to the commission that during the 2015 BRICS summit in Russia, Zuma asked him on the financial progress to begin the nuclear deal. I indicated to the president that the absence of details regarding the proposed financing of the project made it difficult to make uh, progress with the memorandum. I was um, also surprised that the Treasury officials were not allowed in the meeting, even though the Director General of the Department of uh, International Relations and Cooperation What was. was the tone of the meeting? The tone of the meeting was indeed, uh, I, I, I felt very tense and uh, uh, hostile towards uh, me. The President uh, uh, criticized me for not finalizing the financial aspects of the proposed nuclear deal with Russia. And he also said he was not happy that I was not doing what I was supposed to have done a long time ago so that uh, he could have something to present when he meets with his counterpart, President Putin, for their one-on-one meeting. The finance minister told the commission that he was accused of insubordination after refusing to sign a letter pertaining to the nuclear deal back in 2015. Well, as a result of my refusal to sign the letter, I was, uh, it was clear that I was seen as a person standing in the way of, the, of this uh, nuclear deal. I was accused of insubordination, not only by the president, but by some of my colleagues. Were those words directly used? Pardon? The word insubordination, was that, was that a direct uh, quote? Not or? directly, but uh, that it was inferred. Words to that effect? Yes. Yes. And I recall that uh, the attitude of some of my colleagues also, particularly the Minister of International Relations, Minister Maitin Kwanima Shabani, and the Minister of State Security, Minister David Mashobo, uh, was, the attitude was very hostile and they actually uh, wanted me to sign and felt that it was not right that the issues on the nuclear deal had not been finalized. Nene then told the Commission that he refused to sign the guarantee for the nuclear build program because it would have lasting financial implications for the country for decades. It concluded with a decision to proceed with the nuclear program a proposal for the, by the Department of Energy despite the contrary views of the Treasury. In fact, the President uh, made an off-the-cuff remark that Treasury would not do to us what you did with uh, Petro SA. Following so who day, was he speaking when he said what you did with Petro SA? Well, I, I think uh, with uh, the Petro SA deal also, we were uh, perhaps uh, it's a deal that I, I referred to earlier. Um, I, I think National Treasury was seen also as having uh, not been cooperative and as a result the deal could not proceed. Nene concluded his testimony by telling the commission of how then-President Zuma dismissed him in a meeting which did not even last for five minutes, just moments before an announcement of a cabinet reshuffle. I asked when this decision was to take effect and he informed me that uh, he would be making an announcement uh, shortly. I thanked the President for having provided me with the opportunity to serve the country as Minister of Finance. We shook hands and I left. The entire meeting lasted for two to three minutes. The President made no mention of any other reason for my removal. I didn't ask him for reasons for this decision as I did not think it would be appropriate. That was the first and last time we ever spoke about the position at the BRICS Bank. It is obvious that the deployment to the BRICS Bank was a fabrication, if I were to say so. I say so because the President had no authority to offer me a position or to deploy me to a position in the BRICS Bank. 
Meanwhile, Justice Zondo continued to make a plea to ministers and senior government officials who may have any evidence to come forward and testify. The commission is set to resume next Wednesday with Minister Pravin Gordon on the witness stand. Ambali Tetani in Parktown in Johannesburg. Are you looking for opportunities to network with Africa's business leaders? Do you want to engage with movers and shakers and participate in master classes presented by industry experts? Then, here's your personal invitation to attend the 4th Annual Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum and Exhibition taking place on the 8th and 9th of November in Cape Town, South Africa. If you want to register, then visit www.awieforum.org. Again, www.awieforum.org. If you cannot make the event, then don't worry. You can follow it through live broadcasts on Channel Africa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. South Africa's President Sil Ramaphosa will open the much-anticipated job summit in Midrand, east of Johannesburg, this afternoon. The two-day gathering will bring together South Africa's best minds to find creative ways to curb unemployment. The country's labor federations, including Trade Union Federation Kosatu, Naktu and Fedusa, are also expected to make input with the exception of Saftu. Ndebo Mukobo has more. The March-founded job summit is coordinated by the negotiating forum, the National Economic Development and Labor Council Network, to discuss interventions to drive job creation, job retention and economic growth and it will be attended by government, labor and business. The two-day meeting comes at a time when 69,000 jobs in the private non-agricultural sector were lost in the second quarter of this year, while the official unemployment is stubbornly high at just over 27%. And in his maiden speech earlier this year, President Cyril Ramaphosa announced that a job summit will be convened, where social partners will come up with practical ways to create jobs. At the center of our national agenda in 2018 is the creation of jobs, especially for the young people in our country. We are going to embark on a number of measures to address the unemployment challenge. One of the initiatives we will embark on is to convene a job summit within the next few months to align the efforts of every sector and every stakeholder behind the imperative of job creation. The president also outlined what the summit seeks to achieve. This is a response to a number of stakeholders in the labor movement and business who have said to us as government what is needed to immediately and urgently address the challenge of jobs is to have a job summit where many South Africans will put their heads together and come up with solutions. The summit will look at what we need to do to ensure that our economy grows and becomes more productive, that companies invest on a far greater scale and that workers are better equipped and that our economic infrastructure is also expanded. We will expect this summit to come up with practical but urgent solutions and initiatives so that they can be implemented immediately. Since the advent of democracy, government has been looking at innovative ways to create jobs. In 2003, it held the Growth and Development Summit, which gave birth to the extended public works program. The EPWP was officially launched in 2004 as an important avenue for labor absorption aimed at creating temporary job opportunities. And again in 2009, 
government identified job creation as one of its key priorities, promising to create 5 million jobs. But it only managed to create just over 561,000 jobs. And in 2011, the growth path was launched aiming to create 5 million jobs by 2020 and bring down unemployment rate to 15%. Another effort to create jobs was the National Development Plan, which hopes to create an extra 5 million jobs. And despite all these efforts, unemployment in the country is unabating and labor federations are now pinning their hopes on today's job summit. Kosanto General Secretary Begin Jalin Jali says they are confident that today's meeting will go a long way in addressing the country's joblessness. What we're expecting is a question of what are the immediate issues that need to be done in dealing with the question of coordination, the question of whether there are stimulus that are going to be injected to the economy, targets and pilot in terms of the localization and the local procurement, and the numbers in terms of the jobs should be created, but also to start to address the policy questions that are hindrance in terms of the job creation. FEDUSA General Secretary Dennis George, on the other hand, says the summit will provide an important platform for social partners to work together to deal with the challenges facing the country. Our expectation is that when we leave this conference that the levels of trust between government and business and labor would be at a much higher level because it's only when we start working together as the three social partners and implement the commitments that we have made will we be able to make a difference in the country. Without such a commitment, it will not be possible because then the parties will each focus on its own interests instead of focusing on dealing with the massive unemployment in our country. And I think it's through working together that we'll be able to achieve that. President Ramaphosa first mooted the job summit during his State of the Nation address in February this year. The two-day gathering is interrelated with the International Investment Conference, also scheduled to take place later this month. I am Tebu Mokobo in Johannesburg. It's 8.22 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A protest action is expected to continue today in in the Johannesburg suburb of Westbury and could spread to other areas as anger among predominantly coloured communities over drugs, crime and service delivery intensifies. Hundreds of Westbury community members marched to the Sophia Town police station yesterday to demand the release of five residents who were arrested for public violence during protests against drug-related violence in the area this week. Police Minister Begi Kele is expected to return to the community today. Now, for more on this, we are joined in studio by community leader in Westbury, Shahim Ishmael. Good morning, Shahim, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning to you guys and to your listeners out there. Now, the shutdown continues. What exactly is going, what's going to happen today? What's the plan going forward? Uh, firstly, just to put it uh, quite clear to all the listeners, uh, uh, let's start with the release of those people that have been arrested quickly. Yesterday, we've managed to release one. There's only four people that have remained in custody. There was a mishap for those that we have to go because of proof of address uh, has been sent to Sun City, the, the prison, Johannesburg prison. We have been negotiating the whole night. We've, we've appointed an attorney. The whole night, they will be going to court right now. As from now, I'm li- after the studio, I'm leaving to the courts to make sure they, they get released as soon as possible. And... Uh, 
Yes, that has been done. So those four, the other, it's only three remaining, which will be released today. So we are calling to the communities to calm down and to start. Let us think as, uh, let us use all the wisdom we can and think as one community. I think we need to be fair as well upon the ministry and upon government. It's the first time the national minister has come to our community in terms of helping and assisting from national level and jumping into the situation. And one must applaud the minister in terms of coming back today to launch the TRTs, which he's promised the community, which didn't happen for the past three years. We couldn't get a firm deployment. And within one day's time, we got a firm deployment, which the minister is coming to, re- uh, to, to launch it to the communities. And we must appreciate the efforts as well. And we must also learn to give government a chance to really do what they are saying. We cannot criticize if we don't allow somebody to do something. And uh, we should not be misled by political opportunists that are rising in various areas. I've received messages from councillors of the PAC leading a mass strike through all these former colored communities and has also made mention on that recording that they will be joined by the EFF. So this is not a political rally. People are dying. We're trying to save, to bring safety to our community to start, make sure that we save lives and we need to address. Yes, there was some shooting the day before yesterday in one area of not far from the, the venue that we had the, the, the gathering with the minister. And that is specifically why we spoke to the minister. And the minister feels it's very essential that he comes and shows the community. And it's not a talk shop and launches these uh, TRT uh, uh, response units and that it can deal with this type of violence. A normal police station cannot deal with it. Normal police are not empowered to deal with that type of violence where there are shooting involved. So we need, there will be a firm deployment for the next six months in accordance to the minister to, those, uh, to, to the Westbury nuclear area to stabilize. And while it's being stabilized, stabilized, uh, being stabilized we, it's, we are being given the opportunity as a community. We, we also got a massive role to play other than just to look at government. We need to go back and to start structuring our policing, our community policing structures to get them working and to get them effective. Now, Shaheem, let's speak about the issue of gangsterism and the drug lords um, who seem to be running amok. And this is what the community is fighting and trying to ensure that there's, uh, you know, safety for the community of Westbury Nuclear. Now, what has been happening with regards to those people who have been identified? Have they been identified? Have any arrests been made? What's the police ministry saying with regards to drug lords or alleged drug lords who have been identified and who have been perpetrating gangsterism in the areas? This is the main reason why on the top of our priorities list as grievances, and when we spoke to the minister in a briefing session, was that the entire station management needs to be changed. For the past five years, even before, prior since they've been up de- deployed to that station, we've been taken around in circles around those gangster issues and around the violence. And the amount of people, people that have died is what causes us to say they need to be removed immediately. We cannot allow that situation where somebody, uh, where management is put into charge and so many people are losing their lives. Our place has been flooded with drugs and you've got a police management that keep on saying everything is fine and nothing is fine. And that is one of the main bases that we are saying they need to be removed with immediate effect. And I'm glad that the minister and the provincial commission and national police commissioner are currently in the process to reappoint a new management in that, in that police station. Because we, the results hasn't been coming through. And it's been shown again in the space of this week, since the massive deployment and policing in that area, yet you find youngsters shooting at night, undermining the law, taking the law into their own hands, undermining the, the hurt of the community and the plea and what has been going out. 
But that is how it's working because they feel that they are in control. So we need to enforce policing in that community, get the units to deal with them. The community needs to come out and in the, uh, in supportive towards the police and not uh, intimidate the police that are there now because you feel they are their, their presence are too much now. Because you must also bear in mind there are a lot of people in the community that are party to this type of, of, of crimes because it was allowed for them to become part of it. And uh, some people are seeing there's an opportunity to make money. So, so we are saying, yes, it's quite true that we need to allow the policing to come in and do what they do. It doesn't help us to call for new management, new policing, get the corrupt ones out, deploy the TRTs. And now we have a situation which started yesterday where the community is now opposing the police. And it shouldn't be happening. And we're not going to allow and tolerate that. We need that place to be properly policed. And it's happening now. And I'm saying the ministers there, it hasn't been happening to other communities but I think let's use where's this this situation now as a model in terms of how government needs to move into other communities where they face with similar of these type of problems. Now, speaking of other communities, other um, coloured areas, um, with regards to the violence that's taking place in Westbury and Nuclear, there's areas like uh, El Dorado Park, um, Reicha Park, um, apart from speaking from issues of the Western Cape and uh, the Cape Flats, do you think that there's a possibility that this sort of violence will spread to those other communities or is it just rumours and, and, and you know, uh, people just talking out of turn? I've heard, I've received some messages on my phone yesterday being sent around that there was a meeting held in El Rado Park, which I was not party to, and I don't think many of our leaders, I've spoken to quite a lot of community leaders, they were not party to that meeting. So I'm saying, you know, we cannot, do, we cannot be mobilized on social media. We are not being controlled by social media. We are human beings. We need, to be si- we need to sit down and discuss these issues in terms of how do we address the issues within our communities. We need to become matured leaders and we, need, we should not be allowed and be used by political opportunists looking at 2019 to gain votes from these communities. It is not about votes now. It's about saving the lives of people that are really dying. And, and, and I think it must be put quite clear. Let us allow government a chance to, to, to deal and see which way are we going. If government doesn't stick to the promises, we will then decide as a community in terms of how do we approach it now. But let us work as a collective, sit around the table. And I would call to our communities in Westbury, I think for, for the past couple of days, there are basic essential services that the community needs, such as the clinics, the hospitals, and uh, people need bread and milk and that. We're not even getting that service now for the past week and a half now. And I think it's really getting a, a negative impact on the community in terms of our service, services that needs to come to us. So we need to come and restore our community. We are currently mobilizing everybody to attend the funeral of that, uh, support the family, which will be taking place on Saturday. Last night, an, an awesome uh, response, and people just joined in, in the memorial service. And that is why I also heard, and I saw it on TV about this uh, called shutdown of all former colored communities. One cannot just stand up and get a dream and call a shutdown. It doesn't work like that. Life doesn't work like that. I think we need to go and sit and discuss. There is a we, we have spoken to the, the Premier and to the Office of the National Ministry in terms of getting these communities and all their leadership into some sort of a conference for three, four days. Let us discuss the issues, put it on the table, give time frames to government to implement our concerns and to make sure that it's been addressed. But we need to do that. But we cannot just go now every time, hey, why, close off streets, affect everybody's daily lives and say government needs to respond. But we need to do it in an orderly manner. And I think we are matured leaders and we are respectable community leaders. There are ministries, there are churches. We've got teachers involved. You must bear in mind it's school holidays. These streets are full of kids. And we do not want 
a situation where we are teaching our kids a, a directive of lawlessness. We should control and maintain our communities in terms of, after all this, we still need to speak to government. It's the very same people we still need to go and address because they are the ones that need to help us. Now, Shahim, very quickly, just in wrapping up, so one of the positives that I heard um, the other day when uh, Police Minister Begitele was in Westbury addressing the community, um, the MEC of Gauteng uh, Security, I think it was uh, Mamsi Zagele, spoke of um, a, a boot camp for young people. Um, she mentioned that they would uh, ch- pick uh, 100 uh, girls and 100 boys and take them to camp and sort of take them through, um, you know, different aspects of how to develop themselves, how to protect themselves and how to ensure that they are able to be part of a community and, and grow into um, successful pe- young people. What's your take on that? Is this something that is needed and required in the community? It is really required. Whatever initiative the government brings to us and implement it immediately, we should grab it with both hands. And I think it can just help our communities and take us forward. And uh, I think for now, it's not about uh, the government as such. It's about our people and our community. And that is an approach to develop the youngsters and give them leadership and taking us forward. We truly need good leadership for the future. Our time is almost up. We're getting old and we need leadership to understand where, where, where we, we need to go to. Remember also, our leadership comes from an apartheid era. So we need to develop leaders that can take us forward in a new uh, South Africa. And we need to create those youngsters. And what the minister has done is immediately she's, she's come up with that program. She had several programs that the community does not buy into. So I think it's time that we buy into programs that we are calling for and start seeking uh, uh, a way out for our youngsters instead of complaining 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 and by burning and burning it's not going to be the uh, 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 Bring a any solution to, mm. to 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 lead our youngsters into a, a, a worse disasters mm. than what we are currently into now so we should also show now great leadership to everybody out there let us call off and not we are i can say it quite clearly I, we are not party to what has been discussed about this massive stay away and we are praying and hoping that those in uh, in, in Westbury, I'm speaking on behalf of people in Westbury and leadership there, if they whoever takes part in this must take full responsibility and they must take accountability of the actions that w- of the, inve- uh, the envisage to take tomorrow or whenever, but uh, there's a 99% that are not involved in this mm. and hasn't been consulted in this whole process of this massive shutdown. Mm. Shahim, thank you so much for coming through and joining us and giving us an update on exactly what is taking place in Westbury. That's uh, Shahim uh, Ismail, a community leader in Johannesburg, joining us live in studio. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, the United Nations Security Council is heading to the Democratic Republic of Congo ahead of the December elections amid tensions between Congolese authorities and UN concerns over a risk of poll violence. Ethiopian Prime Minister Ahmed Abiy has made an impassioned appeal for democratic reforms that he has championed since taking office in April. And the United Nations Agency UNAIDS says South Africa needs to urgently come up with a new plan to deal with HIV infections in young girls. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South Africa's Higher Education Minister Naledi Pando says the late Environmental Affairs Minister Edna Mulewa contributed immensely to the well-being and sustainability of the country's biodiversity. Pando paid tribute to Mulewa in her keynote address at an official memorial service at the Tswane Event Center in Pretoria on Wednesday. Maluti Obuseng was there. Acknowledging a life well lived, these women have come to pay tribute to the woman they had known for many years, Etna Mulewa. Speaker after speaker had words of praise for the late minister as an activist and an individual. Germany's former minister of environmental affairs, Dr. Barbara Hendricks, also paid tribute to Mulewa. Without a consistent and strong political role played by South Africa and for that matter by Etna Mulewa, the quantum leap in climate protection as agreed in Paris might not have seen the day. Northwest Premier Job Mokoro says the province will always be proud to have produced a person of the late Environmental Affairs Minister's caliber. Mokoro says Molewa's contribution to the country is immense. We in the Northwest are indeed very proud to have had her as one of her own and she today remains one of the stars to shine brightest coming from our province we shall forever cherish her contribution to the development and growth of our province and our country her friend colleague and fellow minister Njimotheka says Mulewa will be greatly missed I'll miss Olga's cooking when we have to meet at her house, it will be our fish sessions because she could cook very well. I will miss our discussions around wildlife. We always shared pictures about wildlife, interesting sightings in the Krugat where she had the privilege of going to the wild. She will always send me pictures. I will miss the loud music, but more than anything, I will miss her generosity, our fights and our friendship. Her brother, Fana Meti, added his tributes. On behalf of my sibling, I want to say we love this beautiful lady. To us, she was not a minister. She was not a premier. We love her more than we can explain.
or we could explain. Higher Education Minister Naledi Pando, in her address at the memorial service, noted that Mulewa's achievements were great, saying she will always be remembered fondly. Achieving what she has on environmental sustainability was no small feat. Building an Agalas II, overseeing the ocean's economy implementation, and protecting our fauna and flora against all odds are all her lasting, excellent contributions to our nation. Her funeral service will be held at Twain Event Center on Saturday and she'll be laid to rest at the Zanfontein Cemetery in Pretoria. I am Maluti Ubuseng in Pretoria. Doctors Without Borders is remembering the darkest day in its history three years ago when its Kunduz trauma center in Afghanistan was hit by a series of aerial bombing raids. More than 40 people were killed during the attack and many more injured. MSF's hospital was the only facility of its kind in northeastern Afghanistan, providing free high-level life and limb-saving trauma care. To reflect on this incident, here's MSF General Director Gulheim Molini. He was the head of mission in Afghanistan during that year of the deadly attack in Kunduz. That day started by night, actually, and uh, the bombing happened around 2 a.m. in the middle of the night. And uh, soon after, my staff started to report that they were actually uh, under attack. uh, And it was becoming clear to them that the plane was making circles around uh, the hospital in the air and bombing them. So uh, it was a lot of panic at that moment, obviously. Nobody thought that this could happen. We had uh, thought about the possibility to, to receive some mortars, for example, uh, during the, 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 the when the fighting was uh, was intense in the town, so lost bullets, so we were prepared for that, but uh, certainly not to be uh, attacked by a warplane. Now, Guillermo, when you get news from your staff that they are under attack, what goes through your mind and what could you do? Who do you think of calling? Do you think there's something you could do to prevent it and say, Come on, guys, remember we are a hospital. But what went through your mind? Well, it went very quickly. Uh, I think the first thinking was to say that the, the Afghan army had very uh, uh, poor uh, air capacity. But still, we, we thought, okay, we have to contact all the warring parties that have air capacity. So basically, it was Afghan army, U.S. army, and NATO forces. So that's what we did immediately. We called all these uh, interlocutors and, and asked them if they had any plane flying over Kunduz, bombing actually uh, what, what probably they didn't know was an hospital. So um, uh, that's what we did immediately. And did anybody take responsibility? Not immediately. Huh? I think that the reaction was uh, uh, on, on the side of the authorities. Uh, that they had to check what was uh, what was happening, and that's the first moment where we, we started to understand that it was a complex chain of command with complex uh, actors. You know, it's, we're talking about a military coalition, uh, so it means many different armies operating under the same banner. And then, okay, uh, very early in the morning, it appeared that uh, it was not uh, the coalition, so it was not the NATO forces, clearly not the Afghan forces, but it was the U.S. the U.S. Army. And I understand that when this attack um, took place. 
place. Uh, 42 of your patients and staff were killed. Yeah, the hospital was fully functional and, and actually extremely busy since more than a week because the town was uh, under attack. And um, it's a big town, more than 50,000 inhabitants. So uh, basically we were treating all the people that were able to reach the uh, hospital, uh, civilians and also some wounded combatants from both sides of the of the conflict. And so um, our teams actually were working day and night because uh, uh, they had to uh, schedule uh, operations that they couldn't do in the first days when the influx was uh, of wounded was so important that they couldn't schedule the operations. So they were just uh, going for the, the highly emergency cases. Uh, but that day precisely, they were starting to be able to to operate on some uh, uh, less uh, uh, emergency cases, so some uh, cases that were stabilized and that were waiting to be operated. So um, indeed, the, the, the 100 bed of the trauma center, uh, so an hospital that is specialized in uh, trauma care, uh, so for people that are uh, wounded, was uh, fully operating. Now, three years on, Kilema, what has happened in terms of picking up the pieces? Has MSF rebuilt the trauma center? What has since happened? The first things that uh, that happened was uh, was supporting our colleagues uh, that lost uh, family members, uh, colleagues that got injured uh, in the in the this event. And I would like today particularly to remember the memory of Dr. Satar, the, the deputy director of uh, of uh, this hospital, uh, Dr. Amin, a very young, promising uh, Afghan doctor that we lost in this attack, together with uh, uh, twelve other doctors about the staff. That's Golheim Molini, General Director of Doctors Without Borders, on the line speaking to Jane Rabutata. Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyus-Malka. Welcome to Humanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements Joining us today in studio in Johannesburg is a delegation from the School of Human and Community Development at Wits University. We have Dr. Deline Alexander, who heads up undergraduate affairs at the Department of Psychology. We have Dr. Jeshika Sidat, who is the head of the Department of Speech, Pathology and Audiology. And we have Dr. Simangiele Maisela, who is an educational psychologist. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoku. Good morning. A business unity South Africa says that the signing of various proposed job agreements will take center stage at the two-day job summit that kicks off in Midrand, Johannesburg. Busa says that the conference is a process rather than an event to find a quick fix to the current job crisis. The business organization has urged South Africans to look at the summit as a conversation between government, society, labor and business to find lasting solutions and meaningful partnerships to tackle the unemployment problem. The summit inputs will also contribute to the Presidential Investment Conference to take place at the end of October. Amina Akram reports. 
SAF2, which represents over 700,000 members across various sectors of the economy, has accused Netlec constituency of blocking it from participating in the job summit. SAF2 was formed in April last year. It says it was excluded on the basis that it has not been in existence for two years and that it therefore cannot participate meaningfully in the job summit. Meanwhile, the South African Federation of Trade Unions, SAFTU, has decided to boycott the job summit, saying it doesn't believe the summit will do anything to reduce unemployment, alleviate poverty, and reduce inequality. SAFTU believes that agreements being presented to the summit have already been fixed by the three constituencies of government, business, and labor. Tsepo Mungwai reports. SAFTU, which represents over 700,000 members across various sectors of the economy, has accused Netlec constituency of blocking it from participating in the job summit. SAFTU was formed in April last year. It says it was excluded on the basis that it has not been in existence for two years and that it therefore cannot participate meaningfully in the job summit. Namibian President Hey Gengob says that the country's manufacturing operations must be modernized, technologically focused, highly flexible, quality-driven and most competitive in order for the country to succeed in the 21st century. He said this in a speech read on his behalf by Agriculture Minister Alpheus Norisab at the official opening of the 2018 Ventuk Show. The president says agriculture is the most important sector of Namibia's economy and the engine to drive people out of poverty. Leading global investment banking, securities and investment management firm Goldman Sachs expects South Africa's economy to grow almost 3% next year. Colin Coleman's prediction is more optimistic than the view held by economists appalled by rates last month who saw Africa's most industrialized economy grow 1.7% in 2019 after sluggish growth of 0.8% this year. Ramaphosa's reform drive suffered a setback last month when data showed the economy entered recession in the second quarter, but he has since unveiled a stimulus and recovery plan to try to get it back on track. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.44 Botswana Pula. It's at 11.68 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 3.91 Brazilian Real. At 65.60 Russian Ruble and at 73.37 Indian Rupee. 6.88 Chinese Yuan. 14.43 to the South African Rand. It's also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 86 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,196. Platinum at $821. Pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at $86.17 a barrel. From an African perspective, my name is Tabisolo Hoko. A sports update up next with Neto Chimani. Thank you, Lulu. From the sports desk, a very good morning. 
Starting off with rugby news, Captain Kiran Reid returns to the New Zealand team as coach Stephen Hansen, named his strongest available side for their last test in the rugby championship against South Africa in Pretoria on Saturday. Reid, who had back surgery last year, had been allowed to miss last week's 35-17 win over Argentina in Buenos Aires instead travelling directly to South Africa and avoiding part of an arduous two-week trip. In his absence, New Zealand clinched the rugby championship for the third successive year, but will be determined to finish with an away win over the Springboks, who upset them in Wellington 36-34 last month for a rare blemish on the All Blacks record in the Southern Hemisphere competition. There are three other changes from last Saturday's starting side, with his first choice Aaron Smith returning at scrum half, veteran Owen Franks back in the front row, and Jack Godwick getting the nod over Ryan Crotty at centre. In soccer news, Liverpool midfielder Nabi Keita was taken to hospital after sustaining a suspected back injury during his team's 1-0 defeat by Napoli in the Champions League last night. The Guinean was taken off the pitch on a stretcher midway through the first half of the group stage tie in Naples and is a major doubt for Liverpool's top-of-the-table Premier League clash at home to Manchester City on Sunday. Lorenzo Insigne scored in the 19th minute to send Napoli to top Group C on four points, one ahead of Liverpool and Paris Saint-Germain. Red Star Belgrade are bottom with one point. Chippa United notched their second APSA Premiership win this season following a 1-0 victory over Free State Stars at the Nelson Mandela Bay Stadium in Port Elizabeth last night. The solitary goal was scored by Ruzai Gamildian. The Chile boys have now moved five places from 14th to 9th position on the South African APSA Premiership table with eight points from seven matches. Eric Tinkler was a happy man. Obviously, we're very, very thrilled to get the three points especially here in PE. The, the record here hasn't been good, I believe, over a few seasons, and uh, I've explained to the player the importance of winning at home, especially here playing on this beautiful stadium, carpet, which suits really our brand of football, the brand of football we want to play, which is a, a possession-based brand of football, a, a bit of entertainment as well, uh, giving the players a certain amount of, of freedom. And I felt we'd done that. In the first half, chances we created, uh, we just struggled to put it in the back of the net, which is a complaint I know you guys are obviously tired of hearing, but we're tired of uh, talking about it. And, you know, as much as we work on it in training, it's not the same. You know, it's a pressure situation. Players tend to panic in that final third and uh, make the wrong decisions. And, uh, you know, that's something that we've got to try and get out of their system. And finally, in boxing news... Deontay Wilder and Tyson Ferry were at it again yesterday, pushing and shoving and trading barbs as their three-city promotional tour for their heavyweight world title fight hit Los Angeles, two days after their London press conference was broken up after they traded shows. The two scuffed again and were separated by their teams at LA. Life Love Club. Just a stone throw away from the Staples Center where they'll battle for Wilder's World Boxing Council heavyweight title in December the first. America's Wilder brings a record of 40-0 with 39 knockouts to his defense against Ferry, the 30-year-old Briton who formerly held the International Boxing Federation. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sports, I'm Neto and ETO Chemani. Back again in an hour with more sports news.
Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, South Africa's finance minister Ntlantlanene says he was fired for refusing to sign a nuclear deal with Russia. And Burundi urges suspended foreign NGOs to comply with new laws. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magadza and Khomutomo Pulane, technical producer Maria Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-63-003327, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Harmonize featuring Diamond Platinums with a song titled Kwangwaru.
wanangwa kigogo Ainamani pesa mose yoko Ainamani punja punja kidogo Ainamani anyongeze mikoko Ainamani namani In the headlines, United Nations Security Council is heading to the DRC ahead of the December elections amid tensions between Congolese authorities and concern over a risk of poll violence. Ethiopian Prime Minister Ahmed Abiy appeals for democratic reforms that he has championed since taking office in April. And South Africa urged to urgently come up with a new plan to